My guest today on GeekSpeak is Professor Warren Sack. Warren is a media theorist, software designer, and artist whose work explores theories and designs for online public space and public discussion. He has a BA from Yale and a PhD from MIT Media Lab. He teaches digital arts and digital arts studies at the University of California at Santa Cruz, where he's a professor in film digital media. Warren's a close personal friend of mine. We've been going over his book, The Software Arts, available by MIT Press, and we've been doing that chapter by chapter. This week, the chapter is Algorithm. I actually decided to break this up into two parts. We'll be covering algorithm in this first part, and then machine learning, or AI as it stands right now in the field. We kind of fell into that conversation about halfway through, and I thought, well, let's break it up into two bits. So first, algorithm with Warren Sack. We recorded this at his house in June of 2021. We've been covering your book, The Software Arts, available from MIT Press, and of course there's multiple episodes on this, and today we're going to be talking about algorithm. Originally this chapter was called arithmetic, and we'll find that in our discussion that arithmetic and algorithm are very much synonyms in some contexts. But algorithm... To my mind, I just the other day, because we I was thinking about going to the next chapter, and I so just was boning up and reading it again, and some and some news story hit, and it was, or maybe it was somebody was speaking, and it was like, oh yeah, well, the algorithms made me do this, or they're, people are using algorithm in a very different context than I've ever thought of it, and I totally understand what they're talking about, but what has happened with the word algorithm, and what does it mean right now contemporarily? I think we're all familiar with it now. It's And that's just happened in the last couple of years. Journalists have decided that things like Facebook might actually change elections. They find that businesses stand or fall according to whether or not Google puts them first for a search term. So the term that they've come to coin for what's going on in the back end that's all the, the hidden magic back there has been algorithm. And so it's gotten stretched out like an old sweater. It kind of fits anything. Algorithm in popular culture means practically anything to do with a computer. Algorithm, hopefully we'll get there in this discussion, within computer science means something really specific. Yeah, I totally understand. I remember a time in GeekSpeak history, because I think GeekSpeak, I've been doing this radio show since before Google was a thing. And when Google's search engine emerged on the scene, we talked about how it worked. We describe one of the things it did, which I think I might've used the term algorithm, but the general win for Google early on, and I, I could be dating it wrong. We came online in 2000, I'm not sure when Google actually hit, but I remember talking about this idea of like, why was Google's search algorithm so successful? And so yeah, it's just used algorithm in there. And that pattern of, well, what, the early pattern of what it was, the way that they pitched the idea early on was that the importance of a website on the internet was really dictated by how many people linked to it. And so they built software that scoured the web and then increased the validity of a search result based on how many people linked to that search result. That was That's very historic in this sense because I don't think that anyone thinks that's how Google decides search page ranking anymore, though there might be some nugget of it. And nowadays, as you mentioned, search is a great example of that. Google has this immense amount of power. And when we say Google has immense power, we're talking about the search results for something, how much traffic happens on the internet and different websites completely depends on how Google presents that from search results. And the way we use the term to decide that is Google's search algorithm. That's what we're talking about. Would you say that's a fair representation of what it is? Is that terminology? I know that it's in our language now, so we're going to use it that way. But is that, to your mind, the right word for algorithm? Is algorithm the right word for that? So it used to be a slang term to say to somebody who just bought a great car, they said, you'd say, you have a great set of wheels there, man. And of course, they weren't just talking about the wheels. They were talking about the whole thing. But the car wouldn't run without the wheels. Algorithms are the same way. You're talking about a part for the whole. Of course, there's an algorithm in Google's search engine. But the search engine is, properly speaking, an entire system. It's a software system. And the algorithms make up 
very important parts of the software system. Mm -hmm. But just as your friend who has a great set of wheels has more than the wheels, the Google search engine has more than the algorithm. Yeah. So another way to put it is all algorithms are software, but not all software is algorithm. Mm -hmm. There's another term. The other thing that exists is it's like a word that stops the conversation about what is behind that word. If I'm talking about gardening and I'm talking about plants and how much water they need, how much sun they need, and how much shade, and talk about all these features, most people can conceptualize those aspects. But at some level, there's going to be some terminology. Maybe it's like a saturation point of earth. You're not going to talk about much more of that, right? You're not talking, well, that earth doesn't hold much water. There's actually details behind that. There's the amount of sand in it, the amount of clay in it, and all these aspects that a gardener would really understand. But at some level you don't keep on diving down. And normally it's just about a term. For me, it seems like in our culture, we understand that computers have a major effect on our society and how we relate to each other. But the term we use to stop the conversation about what it means is algorithm. We say, it's the algorithm. And that just basically means magic. There's no, it doesn't have any meaning it anymore at some level. I think there's some journalists, some social scientists who've stretched the meaning of algorithm into something that makes it a little bit more transparent to a general population, and so therefore it's useful. I think people now have a notion that algorithms are important and that changing an algorithm might have cultural, political, economic stakes. If you don't show up at the top of the search engine list, like your business might tank, but it's not. So they're pointing at something important, but there, there is more to be said, for sure. Yeah, I would say that a lot of times when, we're, when we generalize it, like how much you show up on a search system, it's much more about the system implementation than what I conceptually think from a mathematical or computer science perspective on what an algorithm is. Sure, there are algorithms running, but actually Google search results are many, probably thousands of algorithms. And those algorithms are being defined when to run and how much importance they have off of other systems, which you could also call algorithms. And then on top of that, there's systems that mandate and dictate that. A great example of this from a computer science perspective is that the data that Google search engine is using, the indexing system that holds all the data to know what is on what website, it's a local copy of data. And that's a database. And we don't normally, in computer term, science terms, talk about that as an algorithm. It uses algorithms to be productive in what it does. But we talk about it as a database, a system that holds and, and retrieves data, res resolves data. So in any case, it to me, there's much more nuance. And of course, general news headlines and general discussions are rarely about nuance. Algorithms are usually an idealization that leaves out all the hard engineering problems. <laughs> yeah. So, for example, one thing we rarely think about when we think about Google, although we should, is carbon footprint. Uh, it takes tons of energy in order to cool the server farms that they have. So much energy that they have those server farms, warehouses of computer after computer, like down by the Columbia River, where they can get it cooled or way up in the northern border of Sweden because that set of that many computers generates enormous amount of heat and you got to cool it down. Mm -hmm. That's an engineering detail, if you will, yeah. that is incredibly important. And you've got to place those servers also just as you have to do like cell towers for a phone company or something. You got to place those servers around the world so that the response time is somewhere reasonable. Not all traffic to Google can go through Mountain View. If you're logging in from Tokyo or something like that, you, d you don't want the, the response to be from Mountain View. All these things like uh, heat and speed of electricity, how fast can the signal get from A to B, all these kinds of things are left out of mm -hmm. algorithms. And so they're not just details. They're very important parts of it. Yeah. And that you there's no vocabulary for talking about that. And to some extent, it, it gives you somewhere. So if you have a very inefficient algorithm that is an important part of, let's say, your the operating system for your phone, and you end up doing something like running a lot of video and that exercises that algorithm a lot, and it's an inefficient algorithm, you will notice that probably because your phone will heat up. It'll get hard to touch. Mm -hmm. So if you picked a different algorithm, then your 
phone might not be so hot. So wow. this is this was a big thing when Microsoft was making handheld mobile devices. Windows operating system, like the algorithms employed, were so poor that they just heat up. And whence most of these systems now have gone, the phone systems have gone to a Unix thing. They're so much more efficient, they don't heat up as much, which is a big deal when you don't have a fan. We, yeah. None of us have fans in our phones. They've also moved a lot of the software to hardware implementations so that it's more efficient as well. To a certain extent, you can talk about things like carbon pr- footprint, but it's very indirect. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about the history of the, the term algorithm. Where, where's the word come from? You can find this everywhere, but it's a transliteration of a particular a mathematician, Persian math- mathematician, who was translated in about the... I guess the 11th, 12th century was for a treatise he wrote in, I think, 7800. And algorithm is a variation of his name. Okay. And um, the translation was something like arithmetic by algorithm, where algorithm was the Was, was the, the person. And algorithm, arith- that kind of arithmetic had, was actually originally derived in, in India. So it was a, a Hindi-based arithmetic that was had a floating point and it was decimal base 10 so very much what we use uh, together in right. checkbooks and stuff and this translation of that was a big event in Europe because think about it this the the number system before that was sort of roman numerals right mm-hmm. so you have an x for a 10 and you have a v for a 5 doing arithmetic in that kind of system would be very different than the way we've all learned how to to do it in, in school it all has to do with rearranging and rewriting right mm-hmm. so two plus three which would be e. two strokes plus three strokes would equal v that's crazy or yeah. the whole notion of multiplying by 10 that was really hard thing to do so this decimal what we all learn is arithmetic in elementary school now this was a brand new method that was seen as business magic a competitive so, advantage. It was business-based. And I'm assuming this comes along with the abacus? Or are they, are they associated with each other? In early modern Europe, the old style, in, you can find in my book an example of old style business arithmetic, which was done on the abacus, and new style, which was done on pen, with pens and papers. Like, that, that was the old competition, the, the abacus. And the people who were willing to pay to learn this new thing were mostly business people. So they they're, they began setting up reckoning schools, is what they called them, which oh. was in competition with the university-based system. And you'd go and learn arithmetic. And the arithmetic specifically was to run businesses. That, those were the people who wanted to pay those tuition fees. Yeah. Okay, right. so what do you get out of just obviously adding and subtracting and doing some normal stuff you might do with an abacus is extremely much more fast than anything you can do on paper. But there's something you can get out of doing it in paper with this new arithmetic that was somehow beneficial to business. What was it? It was just business changed. We have to think about this as well. A lot of business was, a a lot of wealth was agricultural based, right? So the feudal system. And you get the, the first invention of mercantile capitalism at this time, where calculating becomes very important, like how much can fit on the ship that you're going to go send out somewhere. And what did you pay for that versus when you trade it with people in India or China, you come back with something else? Did you make a profit? And these were speculative and planning based and cost associated along the way. And so the ability to make sense of that numerically was crucial for the business to succeed. Yeah, so the the book is based on thinking about how the liberal arts have changed. Yeah. And one of the important liberal arts was arithmetic. That was one of the four number-based arts. Yeah. And so that was, in some sense, just a little corner of education at the time. Hang hang on a second. The four number-based, we got arithmetic, we have logic. What else? No. No? Logic is language. Okay, sorry. So the quadrivium included arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. So music, we have to look at this in the old style, which is like ancient Greek mathematics. That was all done by ratios and things like that. Right. So that seemed very 
Number-based. You got the octaves of, of harmonics and all that stuff feels very minimal. Okay, exactly. Sorry exactly. to take off the list. So you're saying that traditionally arithmetic liberal arts was a niche of liberal arts yeah, and the just, business world engaged in it. It was important because mm-hmm. there were only seven subjects, the four, the quadrivium, the four Man. number arts, and then the three language arts, logic, rhetoric, and grammar. So it was important, one of the seven, but it was, was kind of niche. But then when we... With the invention of capitalism, first mercantile capitalism, calculation, arithmetic becomes incredibly important. And then it just becomes more important with the reinvention of capitalism. We go from mercantile capitalism to industrial capitalism. And as soon as you're making things in factories and all this kind of stuff, then calculation, arithmetic becomes more important. And it just becomes increasingly more important. So now we're at the point of financial capitalism, right? Where... Everything, the market runs on computers. So arithmetic went from being this little niche subject for a few people to essentially the backbone of the economy. Yeah. You can't do anything without calculating with arithmetic. And simultaneously, arithmetic went from being, because it was just this niche little academic area, it went from there, especially through the 19th century, in a process of what we call arithmetization. All of mathematics was uh, refounded, that is to say, rewritten in some ways, on arithmetic. There was a complete rethinking of what logic was, as though it was a kind of arithmetic. So right. we see this in projects like George Boole's project of the 19th century, rewriting logic as a kind of arithmetic. Yeah. And that's just continued. So we, we talked a bit about Babbage and trying to automate human activity, cal- computers in, into machine structures. And in this chapter, you talk a lot about, you start a lot about, in the 1960s, Knuth. Tell me who Knuth is. On the one hand, if you look up in the dictionary the etymology of, of the term algorithm, it does have these older roots that pretty much bring it back to this mistranslation of this person's name scholars <laughs> about arithmetic name, yeah. right and there's in a lot of modern treaties they'll say there's arithmetic there's algorithms in euclid the person who founded geometry but it was really donald knuth professor of the art of computer programming at stanford a great volume of books that is define this field multiple volumes he's still working on these he started these and really define the field of analysis and design of algorithms so knuth is like a seminal figure in all this because he transformed algorithm from being oh yeah some people thought about them in the 30s or whatever but it's a whole it's a whole art now and is at the center of what we call computer science today and was at the center of the defined curriculum that the main professional organization, the ACM, the Association of Computing Machinery, said you should teach algorithms as the number one topic to undergraduates. And if you look at the latest version of that curriculum, over 50 years later, they're still saying algorithm, that's at the center of everything. That's And so that's very particular. This is actually why it's classic to have a computer 101 course where you're not dealing with software at all. And you're talking about how do you do a different sort algorithms. You start learning algorithms for sorting things. This is a classic, really, I would say, stupid way to interview somebody for a software job. But it's because anybody that studies software in university, that's what they learn. How algorithms, how you run these algorithms manually at first. And we're talking about bubble. There's lots of different ways of like sorting lists. And it's a classic example because what you want to do is you've got a whole bunch of lists of numbers and you want them in order for some reason. And there's a whole bunch of ways of tackling them. And the different ways of tackling them have different efficiencies. And that's your computer science 101 course, uh, classically. He, Knuth, in his early book, or first volume or whatever, came up with a definition with five points that defines what an algorithm is. Knuth's volumes on algorithms are something that... Everybody in computer science knows they should have read, but nobody's read them. There's a few people who've read them, okay? But so when we say, how does Knuth define the algorithm in in these seminal volumes? We're saying, really, how does that get translated into, let's say, your undergraduate analysis of algorithms course? According to Knuth, 
who's trying now you have to think about this this is a big intellectual project of the early 1960s he's trying to define what is really going to be the center of computer science and he's trying to come up with a concept just like physics has calculus computer science has algorithms so it was something to be very precise and very mathematical so he gives us five axioms five features he calls the features of algorithms and i'm i'm just going to read directly from him mm-hmm. so the first one is called finiteness an algorithm must always terminate after a finite number of steps a procedure which has all the characteristics of an algorithm except that it possibly lacks finiteness may be called a computational method so there's difference between an algorithm and a computational method this is we'll, we'll revisit each of these things so finiteness is the first one second one is definitiveness each step of an algorithm must be precisely defined the actions to be carried out must be rigorously and unambiguously specified for each case formally defined programming languages or computer languages are designed for specifying algorithms in which every statement has a very definite meaning so oh. definitiveness in that clause there he's really tying it to programming languages in some sense the third one is input quantities which are given to the algorithm initially before it begins output that's the fourth one quantities which have a, a specified relation to the inputs and number 5 is effectiveness all the operations performed in the algorithm must be sufficiently basic that they can in principle be done exactly and in a finite length of time by a man using pencil and paper so what we're doing here is really getting into the nitty-gritty of why contra the the very expansive thing we see in the news today when journalists talk about algorithms in computer science are very specific kind of animal very specific yeah and one of the things you mentioned is the finiteness that doesn't match a lot of software like when i compute when i run my computer and it turns on the only way that i turn it off is by my new interaction with it so clearly the operating system is not an algorithm by that definition this so this is the really odd thing about the way the term algorithm has been taken up in by social science by by non-specialists in in general let's say because algorithms are of course very important to software systems like Google or Facebook or whatever but they're not usually the part that we think about at all when we deal with it and in fact algorithms as a category cover just a smidgen of the whole world of software so anything that's designed to not just start and stop according to Knuth is not an algorithm right it's a computational method so your phone your search engine your operating system the network like those aren't algorithms those aren't none of those are algorithms they probably have probably algorithms use. in them but they don't they aren't you can't talk about them as algorithms they're not algorithms and even if they are like a fundamental of what you learn in computer science computer engineering they're not a lot about what you do in software engineering and also there's a ton more material that you need to understand before you can be a programmer for example outside of the space of the algorithm understanding what an algorithm is and maybe how to write them has nothing to do with the language you're going to use has nothing with the the patterns and methodology you use so functional programming versus uh, object oriented programming all these different terminologies and types that we use in software that's nothing to do with algorithms at all right you are an an interface designer you have been you've been yeah. a ux designer and the tricky thing about algorithms is they do not have a vocabulary for interaction That's they it. have an input and an output but anything that has a feedback loop which is anything that has a button on it on the computer for example because you hit the phone number on your key keyboard on your on your phone you want it to place the call I right. don't want it to terminate. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. great, yeah. we're done. Okay, we got that. You don't want your computer constantly turning off, right? Your word processor is not an algorithm. It's supposed to run until you turn it off. So I I understand finiteness. That makes a lot of sense for an algorithm. I mean, mm-hmm. the all these terminologies fit really well with what I think from a computer science idea of an algorithm. And that's why in the news when someone says something like, "Oh, the algorithm didn't let me." I'm kind of like, "No." 
whatever system you're using, Facebook did this thing. And part of how they did that was based on some algorithms they have. But that's not, <laughs> the algorithm didn't do anything. It's, that's just a math equation, if you will. It doesn't have action and intent. It's the system around it that gives an action and intent. So I can understand finiteness. I understand, I understand all of them, except I don't really get how you can say effectiveness. This magic word, that the effectiveness to me means it works. But the way he defines it has to do with people being able to reproduce this on paper. We've gone past that. You can't do the, you can't, the algorithms that currently do things in our world that, you know, software engineering, you can't, re, a human being can't do that on paper. It would take the rest of their life. It's not, doesn't mean, doesn't have any meaning. This is where Knuth's definition of algorithm ties into the history of computing. Because, and we've talked about this before, computers, computer was a job category for a person before it was a machine, right? So computers were people who largely did arithmetic in large teams in order to make these giant calculations. And what they had was gridded paper and a pencil, pretty much. And then they were given instructions about what to do because these big calculations were breaking, broken down into a bunch of parts so that a whole team could address them. So when he says effectiveness here, he's actually taking an image from the history of computing that goes all the way back to the reckoning schools of early modern Venice. How do you operate this? How do you do arithmetic with the decimal system? He's integrating that into his contemporary definition of algorithm. So obviously, he's not thinking about when he says all operations performed in the algorithm must be so basic that they can be done by a man using a pencil and a paper. He's not talking about Shakespeare or Rembrandt. (laughs) He's talking about these people who used to be called computers. Which were mostly women. At a certain moment, especially during the Second World War and especially in astronomy in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Yes, a lot of them are women or younger men. He means conceptually some kind of average human, like a a representation of a person that has no character. (laughs) Something that's... But it it seems odd to me to do that because a a human being, I can say, hey, we go get me a glass of water. I can't do that to a robot. (laughs) So what does it mean to say... It's almost like... Also add high intelligence in here, please. There, there doesn't have that's not a simple step. I, right. I mean, no, so, it's a, it's the it's the Achilles heel of the whole thing, right? It's self referential. It's, it's anthro it's anthropocentric. It's it puts the human right back in the middle of something <laughs> that's supposed to be quintessentially not human. Absolutely, right? absolutely. But I do like that he at least references paper and pencil. The context he's talking about. He's saying, and, and to be let's break down because you talk a little bit about what arithmetic actually is in this, and we have all. We've all learned arithmetic by like decimal. If you add 13 to 17 on paper, how do you do that? If you can't do it in your head, how would you do it? And we all know about the carry the one aspect. That idea that if the number is larger than nine, then you have to carry a one over and then you can use the remainder beneath it. That that concept, that is in some ways an algorithm. We're training mm-hmm. ourselves that that's the pattern you have to do. Right. That is the Ur algorithm. What do you mean Ur algorithm? That's like the first. That's doing arithmetic. That That is standard concept, yeah. I mean, still, if you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, you look up algorithm, the first definition is doing arithmetic (laughs) with base 10 floating point numbers that have a a decimal point. So when he says an algorithm has to be able to be done by a person on a piece of paper, he's saying an algorithm has to be able to be done with an algorithm. Like that doesn't have doesn't it self referential? It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, the there's these strange loops, and I go into this in the book. Yes, you do. Between yeah, these different visual. five criteria, that if you start to unpack this, you realize that they are not very steady, not very stable axioms on which to base the entire of computer science. And yet, it's all been built on this. Another example of this, uh, this last one, this fifth one, this is effectiveness thing, is that the steps have, the, the idea there is the steps have to be small enough and possible. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you could have an algorithm that was, I think you pull in Superman and fly to Nebraska, jump right. out and fly to Nebraska, whatever. Sure, that's a step. That You could define that as a step, but right. it's not actually possible to do that step. And therefore, it ha- doesn't have meaning or something? I think if, if you've got clearly in mind the history of computing this number five effectiveness makes total sense he's saying 
the realm in which we're playing here is like doing arithmetic with paper and pencil. And you can, as I point out in the book, be very clear about, let's say, a script for doing things that an animator could take up and illustrate just fine. Jump out of an airplane and fly at the speed of sound to New York with your red cape and your blue tights. But it makes sense to us. We understand it. But in the world we live in, it's totally clear. But it wouldn't match Knuth's effectiveness because it's obviously out of this world of calculating like sums. Yeah. That's it's interesting because user interface design, there's a lot of elements there that are not algorithms, obviously, but there are patterns that you want to be possible. Like this right. effectiveness is also still something that is very important in all software design. I, I know when, when people talk to me and they're like, oh, you're a software programmer. I've always thought we could do this. And they come up with some idea of an app for their phone. Uh-huh. And I quickly try to translate it into actually functionality and doing it. And sometimes I go, well, and it's very hard to explain why just knowing what's inside a glass of liquid with your phone, you have to have some, you have to have some very small steps to do that. And that feels very much like this effectiveness thing. It's right. more, yeah. Ironically, although it puts the human in the midst of this, what it's trying to uh, eliminate is something that sort of a a phrase that got coined in the 1980s around artificial intelligence, which is called AI completeness. So that means uh, the proposal of a problem that would require an AI system that contained within it an AI system that could do everything a human could do. So that's AI complete. Things like reading the entire library and making up new stories. All you need some is is a subsystem that can read the whole library and understand it the way a human can. And then another one that could integrate all that stuff together and write new stories from the material. And the thing is, that's not really a division of labor. That's, <laughs> you're presupposing your solution in your your problem. So Well that's and I think that's what's actually kind of funny about this number five for me is that you are presupposing that somebody can write with a pencil, which if you tried to write a program that did that, it's actually very hard to do. There's a lot of self-referential problems in that. But this is early definitions, and he keeps on writing new versions of these volumes and stuff. But one of the things that you bring out here, you've got a great little quote, you say, Knuth's, Knuth's definition is ahistorical. With basically, he does quote history, but he's actually doing it wrong. How so? So there's been a whole history of arithmetic, right? Certain kinds of arithmetic. In most ancient societies, there are two ways of doing arithmetic. So if you read Plato, you find out that, you know, there's a way of doing arithmetic that the shopkeepers did. And then there was another kind that was more like philosophers or strategists and others. You find the th- same thing in ancient Babylonia. Like you've got a certain kind of arithmetic that's for just the everyday keeping track of like how many sheep do you have. And another one that's uh, a floating point arithmetic a base 60 arithmetic that becomes very awkward for doing arithmetic like for everyday tasks i don't know you're a shopkeeper whatever. what's it what was it used for though uh for a lot for astronomy and we still know these systems like there's 60 minutes in an hour there's 360 degrees in a circle the these base 60 things are still around. And the floating point, especially when you're multiplying huge numbers, that was really important. All you have got to do is move the floating point to the right or to the left. Mm-hmm. In a lot of, in ancient India, the linguists had a certain kind of arithmetic that was different than what the shop... And, and all of these people had things that they could do that were standard for them in their discipline that you could calculate as an algorithm in some ways as well. So- yeah, so we could anachronistically call these things algorithms but again as i said algorithm is late classical greek mistranslation right right, right. so the, you can't there is no word in ancient greek for algorithm so why is knuth's story of this his historical story kind of a, a historical because he's not covering these other disciplines of arithmetic or he brings in the historical details that are useful for convincing us that there is this kind of Root. timeless notion of algorithm that goes back since forever and anything that messes with that story gets left out the thing i find so interesting about it we when i was working at ucsc with you we had a, a course that was for digi- for masters of fine arts digital artists right the D- digital arts new media program and the students would come in and they we wanted to make sure all of them had some understanding of software programming because so much of digital art has to deal with software 
And the general idea was not every artist is going to write software, but every artist should understand how computers work enough so that they can ask other people or collaborate with people and have that kind of dialogue. So we had this kind of introduction to software, and but it was for artists. And this is a course that you've continually taught over the years and colleagues of yours have taught over the years. And this discussion about why is software teaching so broken was this constant thing that we talk about in, in these groups of really wonderful people. And a lot of it came down to this, you got to learn algorithms. Even though I write, I'm a professional, I'm a senior software engineer at Netflix, one of the very prestigious place to be in my field and paid very well. And I never really think about algorithms. That's not my job. My job is to help people use software. That's the, it's the interface to a human being and all that. And I think a lot of people in, are interested in software development because of that interaction with humans and data and what it can do. But we don't start there. We start with these algorithms, which I don't think have had very much to do with software, which is, I know, a strange thing to say because it's like fundamental to the field. I, I know we get more into that as we go through your book, but I just want to kind of state that. As I was saying before, these five important features of algorithms for Knuth was an attempt to more or less define the kind of math that's at the center of computer science. Like and calculus is leverage that. Exactly. Why do you think that was important to him? As soon as you got something based on math, then at least in the academy, you can be in, the, uh, in a science department or a division of the university that's devoted to science and engineering. Why is being in science and engineering important? Well, it's very practical things like budgets. Science professors make more money. Science professors get big grants. It's just just a practical, tactical kind of thing. But to base software, the funny thing is in these same books, he's advocating for essentially a mathematical view of software. And what we're talking about, both in my book, but also here today, is how you can think about, sure, you can think about software as a kind of math or software as a kind of science or software as engineering, but you can also think about it as an art, as most practicing software engineers do. Indeed, Knuth named his own professorship the art of computer program. He's right. the professor of the art of computer program. He didn't, <laughs> right? And in these same books, he repeatedly makes uh, reference to, as do many specialists in algorithm analysis in the university, he continually makes reference to recipes. He said these are like recipes, right? Now, recipes are not math. and They have numbers in them, though. Unless you're a real traditional cook where you just, oh, pinch of that, a little bit of this. But what that gives away, and what I elaborate on in the book, is the fact that if you don't, if you want to think about it as an art, then a good way to think about an algorithm is as a step-by-step procedure about how to do something or how to make something. Like right. the encyclopedia people that we talked about in earlier episodes. We around. talked about that. And there's a whole tradition. The encyclopedia people are part of it, but a whole tradition that goes back to ancient Greece about writings about how to make stuff, yeah. right? So these are practitioners of particular crafts. It starts especially with people in agriculture. Okay, you're going you're gonna to plant wheat. How do you do that? In the sort of 17th, 18th century, cooks who'd never written anything down began doing these things called recipe books, cookbooks, and they started writing this stuff down. So each craft has had either an older or younger tradition of writing down how you make stuff mm -hmm. in that craft. And algorithms are just the newest form of that, of writing down how you make stuff. In this case, it's how you do some kind of calculation mm -hmm. or other. But what we use software for today vastly exceeds just calculating stuff. It's we, for example, we want it to look a certain way or yeah. there are all, all these other criteria that go into it. And so I think the easiest way to think about algorithms, if you're not going to think about it as a kind of math, is as uh, part and parcel with this longer tradition in arts and crafts of how do you make something? How do you do something? And so Knuth says, this is, I almost called this a recipe book. He says that at a certain mm -hmm. point. He talks about algorithms, talks about them as though they were recipes. That's a frequent analogy. They don't mean it seriously, but it actually should be taken seriously. That's what I'm arguing. 
And if you just go Google a cookbook of Python cookbook or yeah, everywhere, pick, pick any language. Riley so, has a big example of this. Yeah. Right. And there's little tons samples. of cookbooks, Perl cookbook, JavaScript cookbook, or recipes in whatever. So the famous book, Numerical Recipes in C, which is used by most scientists who are trying to do numerical simulations of chemistry or physics or things like that. It's just uh, it's a Bible. It's interesting, though, because the algorithm-based recipes, if you will, the, the recipes that he's talking about in his definition, they're this special type of recipe that only relates to arithmetic in the sense that it's just about moving numbers. In recipes that we think of in the general term, the recipe could be go to Newark, right? Like it can be these complicated steps as long as the person reading it understands it. So there's no breakdown to small steps. But the ones he's talking about, he's inferring the step that's small enough for you to note in nine digits with decimals and a pencil. That's what it actually means? No. So he, first of all, we have to understand that Knuth is an encyclopedist. He's not just the, his algorithms. He's, he's rewritten, he's described algorithms from all across computer science. And so it's an infinite task to write this series of books on the art of computer programming. Excuse me. And the... So, he's an encyclopedist. The other thing to uh, keep in mind is that there is nothing in these five features of algorithms that says they have got to be numerical. In fact, he's got certain volumes on numerical algorithms and other ones on non-numerical algorithms. And in fact, this is another aspect of the computer that people don't usually think about. They think of numbers as being native to computers. But it took a long time. In fact, it wasn't until the late 1950s before computers could actually uh, do arithmetic reliably. Because computers are based on logic circuits. And you can arrange things. This is another thing I talk about in the book in the next chapter, actually. You can arrange logic circuits so that they do arithmetic pretty well but there's all stuff, all kinds of stuff that goes wrong. Assuming that you, you use binary as your base system. Yeah, there's, but there's all kinds of trickiness to this. Somebody won, a, a current professor at Berkeley won the Turing Award for implementing arithmetic. That was a huge deal to, to have accurate arithmetic. And in fact, that's still in play today. The new chips that NVIDIA and others are making for machine learning, deep neural networks and things like that, they do arithmetic, but they do it wrong. Because it's faster. It's a lot faster. So there's nothing intrinsic about uh, number in computers. And this whole notion of calculation, of combining terms and so forth, that's what these algorithms are about. Yeah. In the most popular programming language on the planet, JavaScript, um, doing arithmetic is extremely challenging. Even though it's a, you actually run into problems. I guess just maybe for people who aren't computer scientists, it's good to just note that as soon as one, one place where you run into trouble right away is when you have numbers that are really big. So let's say you're an astronomist and you're measuring things in light years, and but a fraction of a second is also really important because the light goes a long ways and a fraction of a second. What fraction, you know, how many decimal points do you go back? So astronomers are some of the first users of computers, and they have terrible problems because of round-off errors. Yes, the round-off errors are the problem, right? Yeah. If you're only going to devote, let's say, 128 bits to a number, a given number, because you're dealing with billions of numbers, you're only going to devote 128 bits to one number in the computer, then uh, how? what do you have to get rid of of that number? Right. right? There's nothing intrinsic and to in the number. In general, when you're dealing with numbers in, in computer with software, you anytime you do division, you've got that problem, right? If you've got a, a fraction that continues forever, you're going to have to round it over. And so then you run into problems when you're adding them up. The great example of that is you do a third. You take you know one divided by three and you save that number. You take one divided by three and you save that number. You take one divided by three and you save that number. And you add all those up and it doesn't equal one. That's the kind of problems that emerge when you're dealing with software and numbers. Yep. Let's see, where should we go from here? We talk, we've talked, and in, in, I believe we've talked in the past about when computers were human and what they could do and stuff. We, we chatted about that. I'm not sure. Do you want to sum that up a bit about what? Um... This goes back to the effectiveness portion of Canoe's definition, which is that what can a person do 
where he says a man, okay? He means a person. He means a person. This is early 1960s with, with pencil and paper. And there, he's referencing these people who are computers. So anybody who's seen the, the movie, for example, Hidden Figures, has seen computers in action. These women who are calculating all of these trajectories and so forth for the early space program in the U.S. And they work, they're working at NASA. And computers, machines, um, were a new thing. And even at NASA, they were just being starting to be used at the same time as the space program. Not before. The, no, all, the, all the original stuff had to in, in fact, the movie Hidden Figures follows women from computing, uh, paper computing era and the same people learning how to deal with IBM and start writing Fortran, which is one of the first programming languages that we used in that environment. So that's the narrative has all around that. So it's around, right around the same time. Yeah. Right, right. And so that's a, you know, that's a fictional history, but sure. those are all real figures from history. And you can look them up on the web and see that these were pioneers in computing. Yeah. And at one point, computers were people doing arithmetic, basically. And then your next, you talk then about when computers became machines. And that transition, when you have a human doing something versus when you try to make that step be a machine, these little th- details we're talking about that software is actually really hard to do math in, or it's hard to deal with numbers in software because these rounding problems. Then it's also, of course, you've got to get stuff into the system and you've got to store it and keep it and then bring it out. And humans can do so much of that just right out of the bat. But we definitely had a, an epoch where the Excel software or the Google Sheet software is so much better at doing any kind of arithmetic that I've actually, I don't do arithmetic anymore. Like I just pull one of the sheets up and just use it. So we transitioned to that. Did we do that quickly? Is that something that we'll never go back from? What, what's your thoughts around that getting rid of this fundamental concept that defines the field, if you will, of a human being able to do it versus now where humans can't even do that anymore? Let's first say that it's not a done deal that there's a whole field, very important field within computer science called numerical analysis, where people are still trying to figure out how to do arithmetic really fast for big numbers. And so this comes up all the time. Basically, like behind any big search engine is a huge set of arithmetic problems because you deal with web pages as though they're just these giant matrices of numbers that you need to do arithmetic on. And so how do you do that when you've got equations that have billions and billions of terms, right? It's it's non-trivial. Right. These are huge problems. So it's never done. There's certain areas of arithmetic that have been tamed, so to speak, but coincidentally, spreadsheets, things like Excel and so mm-hmm. forth that we know today, were developed in the late 70s, early 80s. Actually, VisiCalc was created by company called Software Art. (laughs) Um, And their big innovation was actually the interface. They said, okay, what do bookkeepers and accountants, what are the paper and pencil methods that they have right now? This grid was named rows and columns. And, you know, if you put a number in here, then it's going to affect the cell down here. They developed, they more or less said, let's just do an exact translation of the paper pencil method to the computer we're going to have rows and columns and cells and calculation methods for those and so and just updated very quickly for them exactly so the big innovation there was not in a new way to add or subtract or multiply numbers or anything like that it was the interface so here's here's a classic example of where algorithm does not cover that. The, right. Their VisiCalc was not a new algorithm. And this is the boon that VisiCalc was so effective and helpful for businesses that it launched the software revolution. In some sense, that the personal was computer. The, that's yeah. why we have personal computers is because of VisiCalc. Well, or at least that's why 99% of businesses had bought. Computer. And right? then the entire workforce started getting learning computers. And then we get to the point where people could have computers at home. Like it, VisiCalc is that. And it's a complete translation of a very ancient form of dealing with shopkeeping. And so those areas of arithmetic that have been completely domesticated by certain pieces of software, yes, then it's much better to to do it with software. But there's all kinds of math and stuff that computers are terrible at. And they you don't necessarily want to do it with computers. You don't think of it. In fact, most mathematicians think about calculation 
as something separate from math. Like the old joke is you go to dinner with a bunch of mathematicians and nobody can divide the checkup <laughs> because they're not necessarily very good at arithmetic. Yeah. And, or calculation. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is, I think, an, it's, it's more than an irony. It's built into our educational system. What I, one thing I've noticed with my son's mathematical education is he just finished sophomore year. And basically most of what he does in math class, even now in high school math, is arithmetic. It's not the, all these other areas of math. Right. They get a little taste of that when they do geometry, but they don't. It's mostly arithmetic, elaborated and, forms of arithmetic. And their phone can do that better than them. And it drives them crazy because most kids are not that interested in arithmetic. Don't want to be a computer. And so they say they don't like math. But they mean they don't which, like arithmetic. <laughs> which is a terrible tragedy because, in fact, maybe they, do, they love math. We, they just don't like doing arithmetic. Now, when we say arithmetic, the way we're talking about it, the way that I learned arithmetic at school, there was arithmetic and then there was multiplication. Like, in some ways, we're talking about all calculation. We're not talking about arithmetic. We're well, talking about gen- general term of calculation. When I'm saying arithmetic, I'm, I'm saying adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing terms. And, you know, the, and this, roots and things like that are the same of that. It's just a different yeah. notation of the same thing. And most of what kids are doing in algebra class, I would say, is still arithmetic. It's just that they have X's and Y's in there as well as like right. specific numbers. Right. So that's the whole field of, of it. And the reason you don't call it math is because when you're talking about math, you're talking about larger conceptual ideas, set theories, things of like that. That's about not the multiplication, right. not a, a number not calculation. You might right. be about talking about shapes or interconnections. Or music. Music, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, all right, good. We've, I feel like we've got a good basis on like the mathematical term of algorithm, the kind of concept of how we think about it in the world is because magic, what software does. Facebook has an algorithm, kind of genericizing how we interact with our computers or how we interact with systems by other people. There's a discipline that is actually very tightly related to algorithm, and they're almost synonymous in some sense, is that machine learning. And we'll continue this conversation focusing on machine learning and the current state and some of Warren's thoughts on that on the next episode. Thank you to Michael Newman for Pet Star Music for the theme song. I'm Lyle Troxel. This is GeekSpeak. If you'd like to give us feedback, please feel free to email me, lyle at geekspeak.org. Or, of course, you can find me on Twitter. I'm just Lyle, L-Y-L-E. Hey, Warren's up there, too, if you want to hit up on Twitter. He's Warren Sack. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.